Let's all pray together. Holy and gracious and mighty God, the heavens declare Your glory and the firmament cries out. Day by day, it utters forth. Your faithfulness is true like the sun every morning. Your mercies are brand new every morning. Your grace never runs out. Your your faithfulness knows no end. And the righteousness you give us clothes us and renders us, Jesus renders us holy and blameless before the Father. Not because we're awesome, but because you were for us. And Father, we confess that so often, so often we trust ourselves more than we trust you. We look to ourselves before we look to You. And so often we take our eyes off of the cross. And the cross ceases to be central and we become central. Forgive us, God. We seek after our own greatness to be praised, to be liked. And we make people really, really, really big and You really, really small. And so often we fight the wrong enemies. We invent enemies to fight rather than fighting the known enemies of sin and self and Satan. But we're thankful that in grace you've called us to yourself. And that in grace, those of us in this room, even right now, who are not yet believers, you are calling. The mere fact that we're here is proof that you are wooing, you are calling, you want to save. And so, Father, we ask that You would do that. Father, even as we celebrated a new marriage yesterday, connected to our family, we pray for that new marriage. We pray that You would bless them as they seek, you know, really starting to figure out what it means to live as a man and wife. And Lord, we pray for every marriage in this room. Father, we pray for those in this room who are empty nesters. Whether that's been for a while or, or is just now starting in that new phase of life. Father, we pray for the marriages that we would not see one another as enemies because we're not. We're teammates. We're partners. We're man and wife. Father, I pray for those in here who Maybe wouldn't like to be married, but it's not not the way you've rolled it out. Father, I pray for trust in you and great rejoicing in your word and what you say about the privilege that it is to live a life of celibacy and singleness. Father, I pray that you would help us to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. I pray that you would help us to remember always that life, all of life, as Luther put it, is repentance. All of life is repentance. And cause us to be repentant, humble, grace-dripping people who seek to see Nolensville and the nations and ourselves more and more worship and enjoy you. Because you are deserving. You are glorious. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you've got your Bibles, grab and make your way to Luke chapter 9. It's on page 563 in a Bible that's around you if you don't have one with you. And if you don't have one with you, please grab that and open it up to 563 so that when I say look at verse 37 or I say look at verse 36 or I say look at whatever verse, you can, you can look at it and um, follow along with us. I do want to say a special thank you to Dallas. Um, where's Dallas at? There he is in the back. Dallas uh, was leading us in worship today as Pastor Chad was out. And so it's always great to have such a godly man and, and, a, and a, a, a guy who's so talented and can serve us as, as he helps to help us worship together uh, in here. So thank you for that, Dallas. Um, when I was a kid growing up in, in Pine Log, we, we did not have uh, an address that had numbers, you know, like um, 1209 Jennings Drive or something. And we didn't have that. Uh, we were just Stegalls, Rural Route 1, Rydell, Georgia, 30171. That was the address. And so living out that far, but still kind of on a, a, a major road, um, we became very, very familiar with roadkill. Okay, Something that if you're smelling, there's, there's roadkill this morning out on, on the road. There's a skunk. I don't know if you guys can smell it. Yeah, it's pretty strong. It'll probably be in here next week as well. It just gets into stuff. But we became very familiar with roadkill. Um, and there was this, I'm not making this up, about five or six miles away, there was a restaurant called Roadkill Cafe. And I don't think they sold it, but still, that was its name. Um, but on that stretch of street, if I just go off the top of my head, things that have been hit in front of the house that I grew up in, that either I've pulled off the road and, and, or drug off or buried or uh, left to rot or whatever, Things that have been dogs, um, numerous cats. There's nothing worse than seeing a cat run over. Um, raccoons, possums, um, deer, and then a, a wild hog. And uh, a civic hit it and tore the civic to shreds when it hit the hog. But, but the hog died. But I'll tell you all this not to tell you about roadkill and all that. That's not the point. The point is that whenever something gets run over, it gets changed. Whenever something gets run over, it does not look the same. It cannot look the same. It's impossible. It is changed. For an animal, it's usually killed, but the point is when something hits something, it cannot not be changed. In a similar way, when the gospel hits us, when we get the gospel, when it runs over a sinner, when you get hit by it and the Spirit reaches into your soul and, and, and regenerates your heart and, and gives you, um, causes you to be born again based upon the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, when that happens, you cannot and you will not look the same. You will be changed. You've been run over by a Mack truck of God's love. You've been... You've been you, I'm trying to think how I could... So, Kenny, I'm going to give you this. So, last week there was a joke in the Tennessee football game about how the duck pulls the truck, right? When there's something about that? Am I, am I making this up or is this true? Okay. Well, the duck pulling the Mack truck ran over the dog yesterday. Huh? Praise the Lord, right? Because <laughs> I can't stand Georgia. But back to the point. Whenever you're hit by the gospel... In a moment of time, you're forgiven of your sin, you're set free from slavery to sin, you're adopted into the family of God, and you're set on this long march of discipleship where you will ever increasingly be being transformed to be more and more like Jesus for the rest of your life. 
Like till you die and go home to be with the Lord or till he returns. You're on this long march of discipleship. But this this long march of discipleship and this long journey of becoming more and more and more like Christ, it's not linear. It's not just a perfect line. It's got peaks and valleys and potholes and pitfalls and mistakes. Mistakes that we make. Even as we're endeavoring to follow Jesus. And as we come to Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50, we see four of the most common mistakes I think that Christians make. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to take a look at those and I want to do some self-examination with these. I want to ask hard questions of us today. And I want us to truly not just hear those, but I want us to ask those questions of ourselves during this time, during the time of response, afterwards, during community group. And I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to convict us and to change us. And that we would learn from these mistakes and, and move on from them as we continue to grow in Christ. And so Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50, let's stand together this morning as we read God's Word together again. Luke chapter 9, verse 37, page 563 around you. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, so last week we talked about that, that's the transfiguration. Jesus has been up there with Moses and Elijah, and, then, and Peter and James and John were up there as well. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among those among them as to which of these, which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And so four common mistakes that Christians make. Four common mistakes. And the first one, the first one is that all too often we trust ourselves more than we trust Christ. This is a common mistake of Christians. We trust ourselves more than we trust Christ. Look at verse 37 again. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. 
And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And so you have this father, you have this dad, and he is distraught because his son is possessed by a demon. All right? And, and he's foaming at the mouth, and the demon is trying to shatter him. Matthew and Mark also tell this same um, uh, story of Jesus. And in that, they, all, they give a few more details and talk about the fact that the boy is sometimes rendered mute and that the demon throws him into fires and has thrown him into water and tried to keep him under the water. And the reason is this is what Satan does. He, he kills and he steals and he destroys and he harms and he maims and he hurts. This is what he does. He hates. And so... Just one observation, the boy's symptoms here are not unlike epilepsy. They're not unlike epilepsy. And there are absolutely chemical and hormonal and um, environmental and physical and emotional, uh, you know, trouble and issues that, that we have. All of us have, many of us have those. But sometimes, sometimes, it's demonic. Sometimes it's not just chemical. It's not just hormonal. It's not just an imbalance. Sometimes it's demonic. And so this dad here has his son, and this son's got scars all over his body from being thrown into the fire and burned, trying to be drowned by the demon. And so the dad is just broken over his son's just life of agony, and he comes seeking help. And he finds Jesus' disciples, and they're not able to help. All right? He finds Jesus, and he asks, Jesus's, he asks Jesus to help because the, the disciples were unable to help. Look at verse 40 again. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And so in a word, Jesus here, all right, Jesus' emotional response is annoyed. Jesus is annoyed, not at the dad, but at the disciples, all right? He's, he's annoyed at them. He's got sympathy for the dad. He heals the boy. He gives him back to his father. He gives the son back to his father. But towards the disciple, he's annoyed. He calls him a faithless and twisted generation. This is referring to Deuteronomy 32 when Israel's experience after the exodus where God calls them a twisted generation. And so Jesus is throwing that label on them and he's grieved that his disciples still aren't getting it. He's annoyed with them. Not sinful impatience like we get. Annoyance for us always goes over to sin. It's just how, the, how we work. Jesus is sinless. All right. So this is not sinful impatience. This is just a holy frustration. Why won't you guys get it? Why won't you guys get this? And so if that's the case, if that is how Jesus is with the disciples, how annoyed is Jesus with you this morning? How annoyed is Jesus with me this morning? Do I annoy him? 
Not that he gets sinfully impatient with me. No, 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 no. But does he have a holy frustration because he wants me to get it and he wants me to live for him and he, he wants what's best for me, but I keep just like a dog returning to its vomit going back over here and not going on to the holiday at sea that he has. And because think about it, what is he annoyed with the disciples over? Think about it. What's he annoyed with them over? He's annoyed that they don't trust him to do what only he can do. They think they can do it. They think that they've moved beyond him, that they don't need him anymore, that they can heal, that they can do all these things. And so what's happened is they've moved from a place where they have faith in God to a place where they have faith in a process. And we do this as a church. If we do the right things, we say the right things, we do, it all, we do this as individuals. If I just play the part, if I say the right things at the right time to the right people, we, we can handle this. And so they're not praying, they're not seeking, they're not pursuing, they're just coasting. They're trusting in themselves more than they are in Christ, like we so often do. Coasting. Trusting in ourselves or in a process. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, what areas of our lives have we maybe set on autopilot? And they're just going. They're just, they're just coasting along. Areas where you might not say, I don't need Jesus. You just live like you don't because you're not praying about it. You're not asking God for help in it. You're not looking for his, to His Word for guidance in it. And so despite what you might espouse with your mouth, what, what, what are you living with your life? Is it a life of self-trust? Are you trusting in yourself? And not trusting in Christ? And that's what we do a lot of times, if we're honest. That's what I do a lot of times. You know that I've even found myself before coming in here um, to preach a sermon and I realize I really haven't prayed for this sermon since like Monday. Why? Because I think I can put a sermon together. I think I can do it. Because if I didn't think that, then I would be on my knees begging the Lord all the time. And that's how we live. We think we can do it. We trust in ourselves. And not in Christ. We put it on autopilot. And so it's on autopilot and we think we're good. We got, a, we got a, a good handle on this. We got a good grip on this. Everything's going good. I've got this illusion of control that I'm living in and everything's good until a bombshell goes off. And then, then we go running back to Jesus. After a bomb, It takes a bombshell for us to go running back to Jesus. Why? Well, why does it take a bombshell to go off in our life before we will run to Jesus? Because we trust in ourselves and not in Christ. We think we've got it. And only when it blows up on us do we run back to Jesus. And in His grace, listen, He's gracious and He's good and He will help us and He will help us put things back in. He'll help us endure and go through these things. But how much more glorifying to Him and how much more good for ourselves would it be if we just walked with Him and trusted Him consistently? I mean, I'm pleading for your joy here. God, God, in His grace, He will keep throwing these bombshells in our lives to disrupt us and try to break us from our just self-trust 
and self-destruct, it's a self-destructing self-trust. And break us from that and put us onto a true trust in Him. That's what He wants to do. And again, that's grace from Him because just think about it for a minute. Every time you trust in yourself, how does that go for you? It may run along for a minute, but ultimately it goes bad. Just look at your life. Who has been the biggest enemy of your own joy and satisfaction? You have. I, I have in my own life. I've robbed myself over and over and over and over and over. And so God in His grace is saying, stop. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So stop trusting yourself and trying to handle it and start trusting me and let me handle it. Friends, we've got to stop trying and stop, stop lying to ourselves that we're strong and we have it together and we can control it. And we've got to come to the freeing, listen, freeing reality that I'm not strong, but I know one who is. We need to, and, and from that place, as Danny Aiken puts it, we need to let our weakness drive us to his strength. We need to let our impotence drive us to his omnipotence. We need to let our humility drive us to His sufficiency. That's mistake number one. We trust ourselves more than we do Christ. Mistake number two is similar. We are constantly taking our eyes off of the cross. We constantly take our eyes off the cross. Look at verse 43. Verse 43. And while all were astonished at the majesty of God, all right, Jesus has just healed the boy, and there's nothing, it's not like some crazy demonic thing. He's just like, I'm creator, you're creation, goodbye, get out. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man's about to be delivered. All right? he's, he's going to the cross. He's about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him, about this saying. And so the disciples, for, for the disciples, it didn't sink in. They, they didn't keep their eyes on the cross. I mean, in a lot of ways, we can kind of forgive the disciples here because the, we live on this side of the cross. They lived on that side. They didn't understand everything. It's only been a week since Jesus told them for the first time, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And so they're sitting there like, what? No, you're the Messiah. That's not how this goes. Messiahs don't die. You're, you're going to usher in the kingdom right now. And so they're not fully understanding everything. And they're just like, you know, kind of, that, that it can't go that way. But now for us on this side of the cross, we, we get it. We see it. And we know better than the disciples did about what's going to happen and what has happened. And yet, the centrality of the cross often doesn't sink in any more in our lives than it did for the disciples. We, like them, make the same mistake of not keeping the cross central in our lives. Because Jesus has called us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. But do we love and serve that way? Do we? Do, do, I, do I deny myself? Do I take up my cross daily and follow Him? Do I live that way? Is the cross central in my life? Is it central in your life? In your, is it central to your time? Is it central to your finances? Or is it peripheral 
and easily pushed to the side for other things. Now, these are questions we, we have to ask and wrestle with. I can't answer them. Is the cross the center of your life? Is it the center of your family life? Or something else? And I think we really do have to wrestle with these questions and be brutally honest because while athletics and academics and dance and band and theater and travel and a gazillion other things that you could name are all wonderful and good and great gifts from God, way too often we will take these good and great gifts from God and we will turn them into our little gods that we pursue and that we bow to and our whole life is built around this thing. I mean... I'm a big sports guy, okay? I'm a former D1 student athlete, so I get it. I get the investment of time that it takes. I get the 24-7, 365 training that it takes. I get all of these things. I understand it. I lived it. I know it. I got a free college education. That's a good thing. No debt coming out of college. That's a really, really, really good thing. I'm thankful for that. But I've also seen the harm that, that sports or any other thing that takes over your life can cause. Because just being brutally honest, asking these hard questions, if the gathering of the saints, which is the one thing in Scripture most clear that we see that believers in Christ are to do weekly, if the gathering of the saints is constantly... Okay, not occasionally, but constantly being squeezed out for your travel sport or for your band or for whatever it is. What are you teaching your kids to value most? I'm not asking what are you telling them is most important, but what are your actions which speak way louder? Teaching your kids is most important. You're teaching them that the things of God are good, but only in so far as they don't infringe upon something else that you like more. Or that you idolize more. You're teaching them to take their eyes off the cross. Don't teach them that. Don't teach yourself that. Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Keep the cross central. Don't let your gaze be distracted. And I'm not saying you don't ever not be here. I'm not going to be here next week. Okay? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, where are your priorities? What are you teaching? Not just with your words, but with your life. All right? So don't let your gaze get distracted from the cross. Because if your gaze gets distracted, you will inevitably fall into mistake number three. And mistake number three is this. We seek our own greatness. We seek our own greatness. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So they just came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They're sitting there trying to figure out who is the greatest next to Jesus. And so how this argument got started, I have no idea. But I was thinking about maybe Peter and James and John came down and the, they, you know, the other disciples couldn't heal this little boy. And they're like, man, if we were here, we could have healed him. But we were up on the mountain with Jesus because 
We're his favorites. And so then they're like, Peter, come on. The only reason Jesus took you up there is because he knows he can't let you out of his sight. And you do something dumb. Last week he called you Satan. So I'm not sure how the argument got started, but nevertheless, they were in this argument about who was the greatest Christian. Which is just a completely idiotic conversation. It's like having a conversation about who's the most humble. I'm the most humble. No, I'm the most humble. You can't have that conversation. You just live it. Right? You just live it. And so they're having this conversation. And so I read a quote by the great 19th century Anglican J.C. Ryle this week. And he said, of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. See, everything we have is a gift of God's grace. Everything we have is a gift of God's grace. I mean, think about the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is not what we do, right? You can't forgive yourself. You can't redeem yourself. You can't justify yourself before a holy God. Somebody's got to do that for you. And so that's why Jesus came and he did it for you. And so there's no room then for swagger in the life of a Christian. Jesus lived a life we haven't, a life without sin. Jesus died the death that we're condemned to die, death for sin. Jesus rose again to give us a gift we could never earn, forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the one who renders us holy and blameless before God, not on the actions of ourselves, but on His actions, based upon what He did, not based upon what we do. So it's all a gift. We didn't do anything. Jesus did it all. So why? How could we ever live with swagger? We didn't do it. Jesus did. The only bragging we should be doing is bragging on our dad. My dad can kick your dad's butt. That's the bragging. Look at the cross. We brag. We boast in the cross. And yet, how much of our lives, if we would be honest, are are built around trying to, to build a case for our own greatness? Trying to build a case for us to have swagger. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Aren't I awesome? Tell me how awesome I am. Don't you wish you were like me? Be jealous of me. Look at all these things I've done and all these things I can do. Aren't I a great person? So let's just do a little pride test here for a second. Yes or no? In your own mind. Yes or no? Does it matter to you if you get recognition for doing a good job, a good paper, improving on something? Not just that you improve, does it matter to you that you get recognized for it? Do you like and even long to be seen as a person of stature? Not just a person of character, but but you want people to admire you for it. Do you get a kick out of how many likes or friends you have on social media? Do you revel and live for compliments? Do you exaggerate? Do titles and tags pump you up? Is popularity and people's opinion of you crucial to your sense of self-worth? Do you always think that you have something valuable to say about almost everything? 
Do you regularly consider yourself to be the wisest or the smartest or maybe the most spiritually mature person in the room? Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humble, with the humble is wisdom. James 4.6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so the disciples here, they're, they're trying to decide who's the greatest. They're having this silly conversation because that's what they want. They want to be known. They, they want acclaim. They want prestige. But notice this. I want you to notice this. This is important. Jesus doesn't call them on the carpet for wanting to be great. He calls them on the carpet for wanting to be known as being great. And that's a huge difference. Huge difference. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the desire to be great at something. In fact, I think that's a healthy thing. The error is in why do you want to be great? For example, is it not good and right to want to be a great friend? To want to be a great parent? To want to be a great spouse? To want to be a great son or daughter? To want to be a great student? To want to be a great employee? Right? Is that not good to, to, to want to have great theology and have a great prayer life and great spiritual discipline and be part of a great community group? So desire for greatness isn't the problem. We, we should desire to be great at things. No one wants to be just a good surgeon. I, I, when Eden was having a, a surgery on her heart, I didn't want to take her to a good surgeon. I want to take her to a great surgeon. And so it's not the desire to be great that's the problem. It's the desire to be known. It's the desire to be praised. It's the desire to be acclaimed and recognized and have your ego stroked and be bragged on and just build your life and identity on your egotistical narcissism. That's the problem. And so Jesus is not saying, hey guys, I hope you all will just be marginal. I wish you'd just be mediocre. That's what I want. No, he's not repudiating greatness. He's redefining it. He's redefining it. He's saying, be great in the things of God, not in the, in the things of man. Our students on Wednesday nights are um, doing a study based around the book by Francis Chan called Crazy Love. And uh, in this, Chan and, and, and Pastor Chad's even kind of got this plastered on the wall in the students' area because it's just a fantastic quote. Chan says this, it's so powerful. He says, Our greatest fear in life should not be failure, but succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Friends, be great in things that matter to God. Not in things that matter to man. That's the whole point that Jesus is making here when he picks up the child in the midst of their argument. Look at 46 again. Look, an argument arose among them as to which was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And so Jesus is not telling his disciples that they're going to find him, they're, they're going to come to Christ by being kind to a child. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that how they relate to a child and by implication to others who are lowly would indicate whether or not they are related to him 
and to God the Father. Because in the first century, if you go back and look at it, children and women at best were seen as second-class citizens. At best. In fact, there's a, um, one rabbi in the Jewish Talmud says this, morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tarrying in places where men of the common people assemble destroys a man. And so if you read through the New Testament, you'll see all these occasions where children are trying to come to Jesus and the disciples are like, no, 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 get back. We don't do childish things. Stay away. And Jesus is like, no, 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 let the children come to me. He rebukes them and says, let the children come to me. And so here in this scene, what happens is Jesus picks up this little child and sets him down to try to drive home the point that it's not about being acclaimed by other people. Take those who are considered lowly and love them and pour out to them and let them see your love. All right. Jesus is identifying with the least of these by taking this child because no one else would do that. They, they would be like, child doesn't have, you know, people who associate with children, they don't have an important role. So that's why they have to spend their time with children. That was their, the mindset in the first century. It's not that different sometimes in the church today. We have sometimes this idea of nursery workers not being viewed as like the pinnacle of ministry. Like, like how worship care isn't viewed as, as the place in ministry that people ascribe to. And so people are, are pridefully, well, I, I've, got, I've got greater gifting than caring, for chi, than caring for children. And Jesus said, no. He who has a heart for the least of these, that's the one who's great. So who are the greatest people in our church? It's our nursery workers. It's our worship care workers over there right now. True greatness. The greatest one is not the one who can boast of the greatest or most prominent relationship, but the one who identifies with the lowly, who receives them, who loves them, and who ministers Christ's kindness to them. And so how are you doing with that? we got plenty of opportunities to serve in worship care. You can get plugged in. But it's not just about children, but, but all, the world, all that the world would consider lowly. How are you serving those who can't speak English? How are you serving those who are refugees here in the Nashville area? Regardless of your political opinions, how are you serving them? How are you serving those who have intellectual or physical disabilities, or as I'd rather say it, not disabilities, but just differently abled? Are you serving those who are struggling to leave a life of sin behind, but it's difficult and it's hard? How are you identifying and walking with them? True greatness in the eyes of God comes when we take the lowest place. When we seek no recognition for ourselves, but we show concern for the weak and the helpless. We take the back seat. We consider others more important than ourselves. Just like Jesus did when he left the glories of heaven and humbled himself and came and lived in our place and died in our place so that we could be redeemed. Friends, don't seek your own greatness, but seek to live greatly for King Jesus. 
So mistake number one, we trust ourselves more than Jesus. Mistake number two, we constantly take our eyes off of the cross. Mistake number three, we seek our own greatness. And finally, mistake number four, we fight the wrong enemies. We fight the wrong enemies. Look at verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you. And so as you read this little um, two-verse story right here, you almost get the idea, you get the sense that, that John thinks he's doing the right thing. And he's expecting an attaboy from Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I I saw this guy and I I told him to stop. Isn't that good? And Jesus instead, he rebukes him. John, why why would you do that? He's doing good stuff. Now, here's something I think we need to see. And think about. John is doing something that he thinks is going to please Jesus. But it doesn't. How often do we do things like that? Where we think we're doing something that's going to please Jesus, but it's not. I wonder wonder what those things are. And I want you to spend some time discussing that tonight in community group or around the table with your family. What are some of these things? I think that'd be a good conversation. But what's going on here is Jesus is saying, listen, these guys aren't your enemies. Stop fighting them. I mean, churches in the area, they're sister churches. They're not enemies. We're not competing with them. Some of my best friends in the whole wide world are churches in the area. Matt Ballard's a pastor at South Point. We're going to be um, doing our men's camp out with them this year. Like We're the same team. We're play, playing for the same coach. Not enemies. Just because it's not... Just because it's not your church that maybe is doing something doesn't mean it's not good things for the kingdom of God and the glory of Christ. But we're, man, we, we're, we're pros at fighting the wrong enemies. Because our biggest enemy, our biggest enemy, who's your biggest enemy? Who's your biggest enemy? Yourself. Your sin. That's your biggest enemy. It's not out there. It's in here. That's your biggest enemy. So we've got to fight this enemy. And if we would spend more time fighting this enemy than we do inventing enemies out there to fight, the world would look vastly different. And even stepping into the political world for a minute, whatever your viewpoint, I'm not getting into viewpoints or dispositions, but people who hold a different political view than you are not your enemy to be defeated. They're not to be demonized. They're not to be hated. They're not to be attacked. And we talk honestly. And we talk openly. And we talk Christianly. Because our leading candidate is Jesus. And we follow Him. And we live for Him. And we live like Him. And we seek to obey Him. And let Him handle the consequences. We'll leave those to Him. People are not an enemy to be defeated. They're a mission field to be won. And to be won to Jesus, not to a a particular political platform. We win them to Jesus, to the gospel. That's what we rally around. 
We rally around the gospel. We rally around Jesus. That's what we rally around. I get a Titans football game. A gazillion different people from... Let me go to the volunteers since they had the big win. Like a volunteers football game. A gazillion different people from a gazillion different walks of life all together unified around the Vols. That's the church, but it's around Jesus. From a gazillion different walks of life and a gazillion, gazillion different backgrounds and differing on many things, but rallied around the centrality of the gospel. That's the church. That's who we're to be. Jesus. And so these are the mistakes that we make so often, so commonly. We trust ourselves more than Christ. We take our eyes off the cross. We seek our own greatness. We fight the wrong enemies. And this grieves Jesus. It grieves Jesus because He wants us to get it. He wants us to, to live it. And so He gets sinlessly annoyed with us. Verse 41 again, He says, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And the rhetorical answer to that, folks, and this is good news, the rhetorical answer to that, how long am I to bear with you? Jesus says to us, as long as it takes, I will bear with you. As long as it takes. He'll walk with us as long as it takes. He wants us to get it. He doesn't run out of patience. He doesn't run out of grace. I mean, still, even in his annoyance here, like even in his annoyance here with the disciples, faithless and twisted generation, what does he do? He still heals the boy. He still comes through for them for what they could not do. He does it for them. He doesn't say, I gave you a chance. We had a deal. I told you to come to me. I gave you that chance. You didn't take it. You blew it. It's your fault. Tough. He doesn't say, I would have been glad to help you, but you didn't come to me when I told you to, so I have no grace for you. Good luck. No, 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 no. He helps them. He knows that it's your fault and He dies to cover your sins. You deserve the punishment. He takes the blame. You did the crime. He does the time. This is the Gospel of Christ. I remember this day, my dad, um, when, I was a, when I was growing up, I was, I was a pretty hard worker, um, but like any kid, I had my lazy moments. And before I could drive, I used to mow, and, and drive and go mow different people's yards, I used to mow our neighbor's yards. And so uh, one of those yards was a lady named Pat Kirk, and she lived about a half mile away from us. So I would, you know, get, get weed eater and lay it across my lap and get on a little poolin Poolan, you know, riding lawnmower and put that thing in high gear and drive down the road with the weed eater. You know, it'd take me like 30 minutes to drive a half mile because, you know, lawnmowers don't drive very fast. But I get down there and, and I would mow her yard. And when I was maybe 14 or so, um, it, it was early July, and I'd been hoping to get a chance to go to this some sort of running expo that was going on in Atlanta that I wanted to go to, but none of my friends were going or anything like that. So we're going to get to go. And I had put off mowing Pat's yard just out of laziness. I should have already done it, but I hadn't done it. It's Saturday. Got to get it done. So I go down to her house and 
I mean, it's like a five-acre yard, and so you're out there for a while. I'd probably been out there for four hours, and I still had about an hour left of weed eating. Super hot. It's July. You know, I'm out there, and i am got my shirt off. I'm sunburned, because I got sunburned once a week when I went to her house, because I never put on lotion. I got grass stuck all over me. I'm weed eating and sweating. It's almost as hot as hauling hay, and um, maybe got an hour left or so, and my dad drives over because you didn't have cell phones. He drives over, and, and, and I'm wondering what my dad's doing. He shows up, and he says, hey, uh, Brent called, and he's going to go down to the expo, and he wanted to know if you wanted to go. And I was like, well, of course I do, Dad, but you know, I, I'm not done, and I've put this off all week. I, I, I've got to get it done. It's my, you know, I can't. I you know, wish I'd done it earlier. And my dad looked at me, and he said, no. You go and have a good good time, son. I'll finish for you. And just the grace. Like, I was the one who was at fault. I was the one who had not held up my end of the bargain. I was the one who had been lazy and had not done what I was supposed to do. But my dad, this is almost 25 years ago, and it still kind of tugs my heart just came over and he had worked all week long and he had worked all day that day. And he still said, I'll finish for you, son. You go on and have a good time. Watching my dad die to himself and live for me left an unbelievably strong, visible picture of what the gospel is all about. That I'm the one who's at fault. I'm the one who deserves to be punished. But in grace, Christ has reached out and, 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 and has taken the blame himself. He has paid the debt that I owe. This isn't to say that my dad never you know, held me accountable and I made my bed and son, you're going to lay in it. But just as much as he did that, he showed me grace. Grace that I still remember. Visible grace of the way my Heavenly Father loves me. Even when He, in His holy frustration, is annoyed with me. He still loves me. And He still bears with me. As long as it takes. And He does the same with you. And so let's learn from our mistakes. Let's put them to death. And let's live for Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. We, as your word tells us, and we see in our own lives, we are sheep who run astray constantly. Forgive us, God. And thank you for your word that that speaks into our lives and shows us the error of our ways. And we pray, Spirit, that you would convict us and not just convict us for a moment, but convict us to, to put effort to change, knowing that Ultimately, we can't change ourselves. Only you can change us, but, but a grace-driven effort, nevertheless. An openness. It's being told by you we're wrong and we need to change. Make us humble people and cause us to desire your fame 
and your greatness be known. And not give a not give a one iota about what it means for us or our name. To live like the great Moravian Count Zinzendorf. Die and be forgotten. Just die living for you. Help us to this. In Jesus' name, amen.